0: If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, as we've been doing, we've been identifying a, a theme a surfaced for us in Acts chapter 2, tonight's theme, or this afternoon's theme, I guess, is uh, that of fellowship, fellowship within the church, what we might call, if we want to use a $6 word, ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. And so I thought it would be appropriate for us to read what I think is one of the most extended, picturesque uh, passages on life within the church, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, a little longer read, but hopefully after our sermon this morning on valuing the word, we won't mind a little longer read. so let me begin by reading in verse 12, this is the word of the living God, please hear it. For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where are the senses of hearing? The whole body were an ear. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, excuse me, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, that it is truth, that it is light. We pray tonight as we consider your bride, the church. God, we pray that you would direct our heart and our thoughts, that we would rightly see, not, not just the body as a, as a whole, but that we would see and understand our, our place in it. That we would understand what it is that you call your church to be. God, that we would rise and follow you. I pray for this church that you would continue to knit them together. That they would be a body where each member is honored and treasured and valued and loved. You've called us to love. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. I've often uh, realized that, among other things, uh, my ecclesiology is something that stands in need of correction. I often talk with my friend Ryan, and we we say repeatedly that we, we just wish we could guide our folks into having a, a proper, full, robust, biblical understanding of the body. Strangely and, and then sadly, though we're part of the church, and though we've many of us have been in the church for decades, we often lack a, a thoughtful, biblical look at what it is that we have been brought into. And because we lack that biblical, robust sense of what it is that God has brought us into, we can be a bit uh, well, inefficient and uh, disobedient. But we can also be discouraged because we, uh, just like prayer, body life sounds great. And then, when you engage in body life, uh, there can be times where it's really hard. Uh, I would, I don't think it's any under exaggeration to say that body life or church life. Uh, at some point in your stay in any church, it's going to be hard. The question we want to kind of consider and address tonight is: How do we respond and, and weather those difficulties and, and be the church that Christ calls us to be? So I want to begin by reading something. I know some of our content has been a little heavy, a little dense, and it is four, and uh, some of us are sleep deprived. So I want to read us something that that tends toward the humor, So it's okay. If, you want to laugh. If no one laughs, it'll be a little awkward. But um, I want to read you a modern parable that uses the imagery of the text we just read, and while it engages in some funny puns in terms of a phrase, it actually drives a very sober point home. Jonathan Lehman wrote in one of his books on uh, church polity, Using the imagery of 1 Corinthians 12, he said, Nose and Hand were sitting in the church pew talking. The morning service led by ear and mouth had just ended, and Hand was telling Nose that he and his family decided to look for a different church. Really, Nose replied. Why so? Oh, I don't know, Hand said, looking down. He was usually slower to speak than the other members of the body. I guess it's because the church doesn't have what Mrs. Hand and I are looking for. Well, what are you looking for? Nose asked. The tone in which he spoke these words was sympathetic, but even as he was speaking them, he knew he would dismiss Hand's answer. If the hands couldn't see that Nose and the rest of the leadership were pointing the church body in the right direction, then the body could do without them. Hand had to think before answering he and Mrs. Hand Pastor Mouth and his family, and Minister of Music Ear meant well. Well, I guess we're looking for a place where people are more like us. Hand stammered. We're trying to, or we tried spending time with legs, but we didn't connect with them. Next, we joined the small group for all the toes. <laughs> But they kept talking about socks and shoes and odors that didn't interest us. And those looked at him this time with genuine dismay. Aren't you glad that they are concerned with odors? Well, sure, sure, I am. But it really isn't for us. Then we attended the Sunday School for All of You Facial Features. Do you remember? We came for several Sundays a couple of months ago. It was, it was great to have you. Thank you. But everyone just wanted to talk and listen and smell and taste. It felt like, well, it felt like you never really wanted to get to work and get your hands dirty. Anyway, Mrs. Hand and I were thinking about checking out the new church over on the east side. We hear they do a lot of clapping and hand raising, (laughs) which is closer to what we need right now. Hmm, nose reply. I see what you mean. We'd hate to see you go, but I guess you have to do what's good for you. At that moment, Mrs. Hand, who had been caught up in another conversation, turned back and joined her husband and Nose. Hand briefly explained that he and or what he and Nose had been talking about, after which Nose repeated his sadness at the prospect of losing the hands. But he again said that he understood, since it sounded like their needs were not being met. Mrs. Hand nodded in agreement. She wanted to be polite, but truth be told, she really wasn't sad about leaving. Her husband had made just enough critical remarks about the church over the years that her heart had begun to reflect this. No, he never burst into open tirade against the body. In fact, he usually apologized for, quote, being so negative, as he put it. But the little complaints that he let slip here and there had an effect. The small groups were a little cliquish. The music was a little out of date. The programs just sometimes seemed silly. The teaching wasn't entirely to their liking, and in the end, it was hard for the two of them to put their finger on it. (laughs) But they finally decided the church wasn't for them. In addition to that, Mrs. Hand knew that their daughter Pinky wasn't comfortable with the youth group. Everyone seemed so different from her that she felt out of joint. <laughs> Mrs. Han said that some uh, Mrs. Han then said something about how much she appreciated Nose and the leadership, but the conversation had already run a little too long for Nose's liking. Besides, her perfume made him want to sneeze. And he thanked Mrs. Hand for her encouragement. He repeated that he was sorry for their departure, then turned around and walked away. Who needed the hands? Apparently, they didn't need him. And while, uh, as someone who appreciates some a good pun and a turn of a phrase, uh, while we may laugh at that story, uh, how many times in the life of... Countless churches is something similar to that played out right before us. Where we see friends, or maybe we've done it ourselves, we, we begin to feel like we are just out of place, and if there's one place we should feel right at home at, it's in the people of God. I'll repeat again what I said at the beginning. Church life is hard, and fellowship is far easier said than done. In Acts chapter 2, in our text, we read that one of the things that the early church was devoted to was fellowship. They were given to it. They were committed to it. In fact, if you kind of pick apart uh, the meaning of, of the Greek word there for devoted, it, it has the sense of persisting in adherence to or being intently Engaged or to attend constantly. So, so this church, these Christians were attending constantly. They were intently engaged in prayer and scripture. And maybe it surprises us that they were committed and intently engaged in fellowship. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of fellowship. Growing up in the church, if you were to ask me to define fellowship as a young man, I would probably say mysterious uh, casseroles and bad Kool-Aid and, and food that came from various and sundry places, some of which were good and some of which were dangerous. We, we usually use fellowship to describe a, a meal where, where we eat <coughs> together and we have awkward conversations. We talk about the weather, we talk about uh, sports, but sometimes we have to do that quietly and in the corner. And, And we kind of drive conversations, and sometimes, I don't know if I'm the only one who's experienced this, you can have months and months of that kind of fellowship and feel like, I don't know this person any better than I did six months ago. I know their sports team that they like and are disappointed in constantly. I know which casseroles they like and dislike but I don't really know them. I don't think the Scripture is saying that these folks were committed to casserole or awkward conversations. It's certainly not what the Bible talks about when it talks about fellowship. They were committed to something far more deeply, biblically rooted than awkward conversations. They were committed to one another. So I want to look at that topic of fellowship And I want to break it into, I don't want to break up our, our pattern, so let's go with three headings again. And we want to pull it apart in its pieces. And the first, if you're taking notes, is this. We want to look at the principles of Christian fellowship. We want to look at the principles of Christian fellowship. Before we can talk about whether or not we are committed to it, or how well we do at it, we have, we have to first understand the thing, just like we had a define prayer and lay its foundation before we could see, like, do is this something that we do, and how are we doing in it? We have to take apart Christian fellowship and see it in the light of Scripture. Now, the theme of Christian fellowship is, is massive in the Scriptures, but if we were to kind of boil it down, we could center it on one Greek word that's used over and over again, not so ironically, it's used for the first time in Acts two forty two our text, and that's the word koinonia. It essentially we translate it fellowship, uh, partnership. It shows up in First Corinthians ten and eleven, and we tra- it's where we get our word communion for the Lord's supper. Like it, it speaks of the the koinonia, the fellowship or the communion, this this sharing, this interchange that happens at the Lord's table between the believer and his God and, and the believer in one another. So this word for fellowship, koinonia, means a partnership, a togetherness, a communing, a sharing, a participating. And before we can talk about how we as Christians horizontally have fellowship, we have to lay the foundation first. And the foundation isn't based on my relationship with you or your relationship with me our fellowship as a church is based on another fellowship it's based on another koinonia it's based on the union that we have with the lord jesus christ so the foundation for all christian fellowship has to start with the vertical relationship between you and jesus christ first corinthians chapter 1 verse 9 says god is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship. You were called into koinonia by the Father, into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this idea of sharing, union, participating, being a a yoke fellow, or working together for the same goal, and having an exchange... That begins with our being brought into Jesus Christ by the sovereign work and salvation that God has brought about. God is the one who in eternity past has called us to be his own, set us apart as his own possession, and then in in time has brought us Uh, into a place where he makes us alive by the work of his Spirit, unites us by faith to his Son, and it's at that point when we've been regenerated by the work of the Spirit that he says, you have koinonia, you have fellowship, you have partnership with Jesus. And that should shock us and stun us when we consider the gravity of that kind of a statement. Do you realize that The Father, Son, and Spirit take fallen sinful people like you and like me who were God haters, rebels, who were vile in every area of their life and He has pulled us out of that. Out of spiritual death and by means of the Holy Spirit has regenerated, literally brought us to life and by The faith and the regenerated work that the Holy Spirit works in our life knit us or bind us inseparably to Christ to such a degree that we're called sharers. We have union with Him. We are made one with Jesus Christ. That should stun us each and every time we think of that. Who are we that He would knit us to the Savior? That He would pull us from... and cause us to share in Christ, in His person, in His work, in all of His saving benefits. When the Spirit makes us alive, we we literally become participants, people who who are the receivers of this work that Christ has brought about. And there's an exchange of sorts, right? Paul captures that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think, where he says that, that our sin was laid to his account and his righteousness was is now taken upon us. And this, this great exchange happens where Christ is treated as the malefactor that I am, and I am clothed in the righteous garments of Christ. And there's this, this unity, this, this fellowship, And while it's begun at regeneration, it continues even now into this moment and will actually never cease to be. The fellowship begun at regeneration will never stop. You will never stop being a sharer with Jesus Christ. You will never stop being a participant in His life. Whatever comes into your life, whatever devastating circumstances... Whatever dark, stormy days, they can never blot out the light of the life that you have with Jesus Christ. Charles Hodge says fellowship includes union and communion or co-union. It, in the original word, koinonia, signifies, this is still Charles Hodge, signifies participation. We are called partakers of Christ. Partakers of of His life, as members of His body. And we have all things in common with Him. When we have fellowship with Christ, you realize we are made, what's the word that the Bible uses, co-heirs? That the inheritance that is rightly owed to Christ is now yours? You now are a fellow recipient in the eternal incredible all surpassing our, our wildest imaginations inheritance that is rightly deserving of Jesus Christ that when you are knit to him you're brought into relationship with him he is now your brother and your high priest and you are made a son and a daughter in the gospel and all that is his is now shared with you that's the union that forms the foundation of what, it, of, of what we build Christian fellowship off of. And I think it's dangerous for us to think about fellowship outside of those terms. When we think of how, how, we, how our relationships work horizontally, if we don't get the vertical right, because that's really humbling for us to think that I deserved nothing and have been given everything. It's really hard to go and be self-serving after that point. It's really hard for us to be puffed up with pride. And and let's be honest, in the church we can start to think that we're a pretty big deal. It's really humbling to think about how Christ took nobodies like us and has seated us in the heavenly places with him uh, and, and brought us out of death into sharers in his life. That's the koinonia, the fellowship we have vertically. And it's flowing out of that that we then can look at the horizontal aspects of it. So what does it mean horizontally for us to be sharers? I mean, the, the logical question is, what do we share? It's more than casserole. I'm not hating on casserole. I'm sort of hating on casserole. But it, it's, it's not that we share food. What do we share? I think a better way of asking the question is, Who do we share? We share Christ. What is it that we have in common? Christ. We, if you're in Christ Jesus, and I'm in Christ Jesus, we have everything in common. Does it matter what color your skin is? Or how you were raised? Or, or, Or what box you check in the voting booth? or what age group or generation, does any of that really matter? You have Christ in common. We have everything in common. If we are participants with Jesus Christ and part of His family, that's why I know we use the word and we don't think of the relationship. We call each other what? Brother, sister. Those words have real meaning. We are part of God's family. We share a blood that is not our own. We share the blood of Christ. All of the language that the Bible uses is union type, or type language. It calls us, we are one bride for Jesus Christ. We are one body in Him. We are one living temple in Jesus Christ. And if we just take the body metaphor that we read in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, we are as much a part of one another as your left hand is a part of your arm. As your your leg and knee are together, we are one in Him that by regenerating work of the Spirit and faith that binds us to the Savior, we are also then bound to all who are in Him. We are made one in the Gospel. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. There's one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This is where Paul takes his theological conclusion in Philippians chapter 2. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and he wants you to stop after each of these and ask yourself, Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yeah. <laughs> yes, there is. There is all encouragement in Christ. Is there any comfort that comes from His love? Yeah, that's my one comfort in life. and Yes, there's comfort in His love. Is there any participation? Is there any koinonia in the Spirit? Do you share with the Spirit? Yes. Is there any affection and sympathy? Then complete my joy. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Being in full accord with one another, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not on his own interests, but on the interests of others. I I mentioned it this morning. I want to mention it again. Theology has consequences. We really believe what we say we believe about salvation, that we're wretched, undeserving sinners who've been brought into an eternal life and given everything, and that part of that salvation means we are inseparably knit to all the other saints who are now united in the body of Christ, that we are one body, we have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God. That should reflect itself in the way that we live. That should impact the way that we talk to each other on the Lord's Day and on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. On every day of the week, it should change the way we interact because of what we believe theologically that the Gospel does. These spiritual spiritual realities should change the way we live. Who is your brother and sister? I mean, if you look, I don't know if you guys have pews. We have pews, so I usually say pews. If you look up the row to your left and look down the row to your right, you ask, who are these people that are sitting around me that that attend the the church that you go to? They are someone. See them with spiritual reality. They are someone who have been made participators and partakers of Jesus Christ. There's someone upon whom. The trying God has set his affection. They're called beloved in the scripture for a reason. Because the love of God has been so intently placed upon them that it, it defines them. They are people who God loves preeminently. They're people for whom Christ has died. They're people who as different as they might be from us in personality and background and all that, they're people who have the very Spirit of God dwelling in them. Do you realize that? I mean, again, our theology should have consequences. We believe that the Spirit indwells the people that He he raises from the spiritual dead and that He comes as the sign and seal and the first fruit and the first down payment of their eternal inheritance. And so the saint with which you fellowship and remember, the saint that you sometimes slander, they have the very Spirit of God dwelling within them. It should cause us to be very careful with how we treat one another. Any dad, I think, who has a child, especially a daughter, I think, understands this truth. Uh, you better be careful with my daughter if you don't, you've got problems with that. (laughs) Especially when they get older and young men start coming around. I've got decades, I hope, before that happens. similar thing is true here, right? You don't mistreat God's daughter. You don't mistreat God's sons. That's the same argument that Peter uses in 1 Peter when he's talking about husband-wife relationship. He tells the husband, you forget an important truth. She's his daughter you'd better be careful with her. Same is true, the, the same is true of any believer. It doesn't matter how well loved they are, how intelligent they are, whether they're good looking, whether they're easy to be around. He doesn't predicate on any of that. Are they knit to Christ? If the answer is yes. Then you have union with them. You have fellowship with them. And we need to be very careful. That's the theological basis. That's the... The principles, and we're in trouble because I just realized I didn't time for this. So it could be longer. It's all right. The second is the practice of Christian fellowship. So if you're taking notes, we looked first at the principles of Christian fellowship. Let's look at the practice. How does that theology, very hinted at it with being careful with one another, but how does that theology drive itself into the lifeblood of the local church? What does it look like? It's nice to just talk about it and, and talk in broad. Abstract ideas of you know be be nice to each other and and be unified. And we can go out there. That's that's easy. Let's look at some of the specifics. What does this look like in the church? Three three categories I want to think of as to how that theology works its way out in our practice. The first is fellowship with regard to our affections. Fellowship with regard to (coughs) our affections. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, love one another. With brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. If we believe what we say, we believe that the Bible teaches that the person sitting next to you in the pew is indwelt by the Spirit of God and knit to Christ. You are called by Scripture to love that person. And you might say, well, they're hard to love. That's probably true. That doesn't change the command, does it? Love them. But what if they don't deserve it? They don't. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. No one deserves that. God didn't act on us because of our deserving. Therefore, we don't, do, we don't act uh, toward others based on their des- on their deserving. Love them with brotherly affection. And the second half is, I think, just ours as hard the, as the first outdo one another in showing honor. Could you imagine what your church and our church in Kirkland would look like if we just if we said all right, let's wrap our arms around this truth. We're going to outdo one another in showing honor. Churches can be very competitive places, sadly. And Paul says right, if you want to be competitive, then just be all bent on honoring one another. Be all in on loving one another. Or as Philippians two three says, "Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves." That would deal death blows to <sighs> worshiping preference. I don't know how many fights in churches come and flow out of personal preferences being violated. Folks wanting to die on hills that are never to be died on. He says, "Do this." Be more concerned about the person sitting in the seat next to you than the person sitting in your seat. <laughs> be more concerned with how can I serve them? How can I help them? How can I show them Christ's love here and now and, and be the hands and the feet and the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ working in this place to benefit them? Isn't that a part of our fundamental definition for love? To seek the good of another at expense. To yourself. Love shouldn't be cheap. Love shouldn't come easily. How do these impact our affections? We should be zealous people who love one another. That means our fellowship shouldn't be cold. It shouldn't be clinical. It shouldn't be detached. We should really see in the body Weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's hard. I don't know which is harder, crying with someone who's who's weeping or rejoicing with someone who's rejoicing. They're both hard. But we should affectionately from our hearts love each other. Sometimes we can boil this down and say, Do you love them? Like, yeah, yeah, I know. Scripture tells me love, my love. Them. No, really. Do you, does she do you really in the core of who you are, love them. When you see God's people assembling on His day, do you ever just sit back and wonder, like, I can't believe these are my people. The, the saints are beautiful because Christ has set His affection, affection on them. We should from time to time just be in awe that God has put us in such a body. These doctrines should also impact uh, our words, fellowship with regard to our words. Maybe this is one of the harder ones. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another. Build up one another just as you're doing. How How does fellowship look in the use of the mouth? It looks like the people who are devoted to encouraging each other, to building each other up in the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave us, and I walk this through with my six-year-old often, why did God give you a mouth to praise His name and to build up His people? That's why you have a voice. We'll get into negative uses later. But, uh, positively, that's, that's why we have a, a, a voice, is to praise our God and to build up and encourage His people. So, do we encourage one another? And, and go out of our way to speak truthful, grace-filled, love-filled, season-appropriate words. I know sometimes we can say some harsh things that are true. We like driving into ditches as Christians. Sometimes we, we, we drive in a ditch of truth. And we, do, we say harsh things with edges on them. and We don't mix it with love. Or sometimes if someone says, like, you know, I just want to love them, you're not speaking truth into their life. Like, they're in sin, and you're not telling them that. Our words should always be both gracious and loving, and yet uncompromising on the truth. Not falling into one or the other. Another way we use our mouth to uh, fellowship with each other is to pray for one another and to pray with one another. Do you engage your voice, the gift of your voice to lift up the saints in God's presence? Do you take your pastor to the throne of grace and plead for him and his family? Do you take your fellow church member to the throne of grace and plead them and their family before God's presence and, and pray for help? Do you pray with them when they're in a difficult trial? Do you ask them, hey, can can I come over and just spend time in prayer with you? Do we underestimate what a blessing it is to have the prayers of the saints? Another way which uh, this should impact our fellowship be fellowship with regard to our actions, not just our affections, not just our words, but actually how we live life out. Ephesians four thirty-two says, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving." one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness in the church can be a real difficult thing, can't it? Because you go to church with the church militant, not the church triumphant. The church triumphant is in heaven and they don't deal with sin anymore. The church militant, we're still sinful and like our name implies, sometimes we fight. Um, And we sin against each other. It's what happens when you live in community with sinners, right? Right? What happens when we sin against, not not if we sin against each other, but when we sin against each other? Is there true repentance, true reconciliation, and true restoration that happens? Do we forgive to the degree that we've been forgiven? The church should be a place where forgiveness flows freely. Where even though we've been hurt deeply, we forgive deeply kindness should season all of our interactions. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. We should, if, if we have a grasp of what biblical fellowship is, it results in a humble church. Not in proud words and proud actions and, and judgmental glances. Humble people. A people who look to the needs of others more than we look to the needs of ourselves. It will result in the people who don't shove all of their preferences to the front and say, I I want the carpet this color and I like this event run this way and I'll die on that hill. Or do we submit to one another in love and humility? It's just carpet. Romans 15:7 says we're to welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Is your church a welcoming, warm place? I can encourage you. In my limited experience, it is. <laughs> so be encouraged there and continue to grow in that. Here's our welcoming group. Continue that. When someone walks in to your fellowship and you find, and, they, and they are a brother, let's just say they're a brother and sister, you, in an early conversation, you find out these are people upon whom God said his love. They should be treasured possessions. They should be embraced as Christians. I pray that your church and ours in Kirkland would have a reputation for being the most welcoming church in town. Not that we don't have any doctrinal distinctives or not that we roll over on everything. No, because God has welcomed us. So we welcome others. Can you imagine what a church committed to these things would look like? And these are just a sampling, friends. This is, this is not exhaustive. Don't think, oh, if I get those six or seven things down, I've got it. Like, No, this is the entry into what fellowship looks like. This is what this theology should result in. Could you imagine what sort of an impact you would have on your community and on each other? This was the fellowship that we enjoy. Well, that's the practice of fellowship Point three, and this one might strike you as a little odd, but I'm an odd guy, so that's all right. The problems facing fellowship. The problems facing fellowship. Sadly, I think we're more familiar with this list than the one we just looked at. Fellowship is a beautiful treasure that when it is lived out rightly in light of our horizontal relationship with Christ and that works its way out into our our vertical with Christ and horizontal with each other, it can be a marvelous, beautiful, uh, some of the sweetest things in your life. It's also very fragile. It's very easy to do damage to your relationships with each other. It's really easy to tear at the fabric of fellowship. So I want to look at, again, uh, it, might, it might be an odd way of organizing thoughts, but uh, how, how or what things do we do that destroy or poison or attack fellowship? So let's look at, let's just reverse the list with, that we just looked at, point for point. Fel- or destructive tendencies, in our affections. Withhold love from one another and you will do destructive damage to fellowship in the church. Be guarded. Be closed off to your brothers and sisters. Be real slow to let anyone in and only let them in when they earn it. Again, somebody like that would get me in trouble if anyone were ever clip that down. <laughs> I'm saying don't do that. That's a destructive tendency. So often in the church, uh, we think, well, I don't hate them. That's good. Do you love them? No, I'm really guarded. That is also destructive and damaging to the body. When one member is very resistant to others. Sometimes we just turn uh, some verses around and rearrange the order of the words. We rearrange what Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, and we and the way we quote it to ourselves is in at least in our actions is consider others as less significant than yourself. Consider others as less significant. Consider what they are going through, consider whether I consider their input as just less important than what you think. This is our natural setting. Like this, this is normal in my mind. Right? Like, this is how we as simple people interact. My ideas are the best ideas. My perspectives are the best. If you want to attack a church's fabric of fellowship, look down on others. Be reserved, be guarded, be aloof. That tears at the fabric of a church. With our words, we can use our words destructively. Uh, in the active sense, if you want, if if you want to tear apart the fellowship of a church, engage in gossip and slander, speak very negatively of your brothers and sisters in the faith, and do and, and we can do it craftily, can't we? Sometimes we gossip and we call it a prayer request. <laughs> Sometimes we we gossip and we say, I'm just I'm I'm, I'm concerned and I wanted other people to be concerned. Whether no, you're gossiping and you want other people to get drawn into that. <laughs> Gossip and slander will destroy a church. Another active sense or negative use of the mouth is to criticize and tear down. Be sharp with your words. And you say, well, i don't I, I'm not sharp and criticizing them to their face. Oh, that's good. How about behind their back? Are you ever talking about someone and when they walk up it gets really awkward? It's a good indication that what you were saying probably should not have been said. Sometimes we do this passively with our words. Yes, we can think of the act of, of, of folks who sow dissension and, we, and, they, and, they, and they slander and they tear down and they're critical and we're like, well, we're not that. Okay, but there's a passive way also to, in this sense, not use our mouth. Just don't be encouraging. That will destroy a church. Don't build up. Don't use the gift of your voice the way that God intended it to be used. And that will actually be detrimental to your church. Perhaps the most destructive of all, and the one I think we're all most guilty of, don't pray for each other. I think that is just really destructive to the church. With regards to gossip, um, I've seen, I've, I've participated in churches where that was horrible, really horrible. And one of the things that uh, refreshed me about Juanita when I first came, so this is a, a, a praise of, of our people, not the way I think I've taught them, uh, is that they didn't do that. I remember one time coming out of college, I'll be careful with the details, make sure I don't violate the principle I'm trying to illustrate, uh, but I had a professor who, um said things in class that no one should ever say. And it was horrendous it was it was it was things that would give movies an R rating. I'll just say that. And he did so in pastoral classes. <laughs> and I as a very zealous young man, felt what I thought was holy wrath. <laughs> and I went home and, and spoke to my mentor about it, and I'm sure he saw me coming a mile away, just, just fuming. And I told him, I was like, I've got to tell you about this. And I just felt righteously indignant. And he just, he, he interrupted me and just said, you need to stop right now. He says, I'll let you talk if you really are seeking counsel. He says, but you will not gossip or slander someone in my presence. He says, so I don't want a name. And I don't want details that would lead me to know who this is. We can talk about a situation. And we can talk about how you respond. But you will not gossip in my presence. I will not let you sin. And I remember that took a lot of steam of my engine at that moment. <laughs> and um, his first question to me after I laid out all of this man's inexcusable use of his mouth. He goes, so how often do you pray for him? Never. <laughs> and uh, it, I just was I was struck both by how blinded I could be, but I was also struck with his dedication. I, I witnessed it on multiple occasions with him. He refused to use his mouth negatively in the fellowship of the saints. Okay. So he said he, he said, Do you think this guy's a believer? So yeah, I think so. He claims to be. He goes, then be very careful with what you're about to say. Mm-hmm. The Spirit of God dwells in. You. Be cautious. Be careful with your words, be careful with your affections, thirdly be careful with your actions. Sometimes we can engage in actions that are are destructive to the church. I think what's more often the case, as I've witnessed it, is uh, if you want to pull apart and, and damage the fellowship in the body, only engage in body life when it's convenient. Only engage in body life when it scratches a felt need in your life. Be focused on yourself. I hear often folks don't don't go to certain activities or, or events in our church or prayer meeting or this or that. And you ask them, i love to see you there. Uh, I just don't really feel the need to... That's not really convenient with my schedule right now. And I get everyone can't be everything all the time. But we're so guarded with our schedules. We're so guarded with the way that we participate. And I think the previous generation, at least the way I experienced it, did this better than us. If God's people assembled, the sense was, I want to be among them. I want to be there. If God's people are meeting, if the ch- metaphorical church doors are open, I want to be there. And I'm really thankful to my parents for <coughs> modeling that. And it wasn't until college that I realized that that wasn't a normal experience for people. I'm really thankful to my parents for teaching that the church is the most important thing in our lives. And, and when God's people gather to call on His name, <laughs> or whatever, be there. Those things tear the church, friends. And I want to warn you against their dangers. Some of these are really sneaky. Really subtle. I would hate to see them infect any church that is faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. He says, I urge you, brothers, you know that the house of Stephanas Were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Uh, One possible uh, translation or nuance for the word "devoted" in this case, this is a slightly different one than the one in Acts, but the sense is to be, in a positive sense, addicted. He is addicted to the saints. Uh, Usually we just use that word in a negative sense in our our common time. We talk about addiction, we're like, oh, that's bad. Like, in this sense, what he's saying is he is so devoted to God's people that it marked the household of Stephanus. I pray and hope that that would be be true of all of us, that they would save your home. That family, man, they are, it's like they're addicted to the people at Providence, I mean, they—I don't know what it is. They're just normal people at Providence. But this family, if they hear of a need, they move. If they hear the church assembly, they go. They are—they love the saints. They are addicted to the saints. I pray that be true of us. J.I. Packer says we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercises of private devotion, we should recognize rather that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. For God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with himself is fed by our fellowship with fellow Christians and requires us to be so fed constantly from its own deepening and enrichment. Do you you know the effect that God's people have on you spiritually? How many times have you gone to church on the Lord's Day? Heart cold, mind distracted. If you were honest with yourself, you don't want to be there. And you see the saints assembly. And your heart's warmed. Or you hear the saints singing. And your heart is inflamed for love for Christ. We need one another. We're needy people with it. Isn't that what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12? He says, here's one thing you cannot ever say. I don't need so-and-so. I don't need the hand. I don't need the ear. I don't need the leg. That's one thing we do not get to say in the church of Jesus Christ. We are so dependent on each other that we desperately need each other. Because the Spirit of God has... It dwelt in the life of each and every one of us and given them gifts. And those gifts only ever are to be used in flowing out to others in the body. So literally, the other people in your church have gifts that you need. And you have gifts that they need to build up one another. It's not like we should we in fact we should we should not, and it's destructive if we view our Christian life as like me and my Bible in the basement, and and anything outside of that is extra. It's not the Christian life. That is a context foreign to anything in the New Testament or the Old, for that matter. We need one another. Friends, don't underestimate the value of fellowship. Don't take it for granted. And don't underestimate its fragility. It it, it needs to be nurtured and grown. And when you find it, you find a church like this that experiences that, devote yourself as access to not just participating, but to build and grow that fellowship so that those meal occasions, we're not talking about the weather and sports. We're digging into each other's lives and encouraging it those moments where we're around food, we all love food. But is it really about the food at that moment? Or is it sharing life? Is it sharing struggles that parents have with their kids? And and as another parent is saying, I'm in the trenches with you. Stay faithful. Stay on target. Is it uh, life circumstances where we see a brother or sister, suffering. Sometimes you go in and and they need truth spoken into their life. Sometimes they just need a brother or sister to put an arm around them and and to say, I'm here for you. I want to walk this valley with you. I want to weep with you. Sometimes we need to celebrate with each other. The birth of a child or an accomplishment in life. We need one another to rejoice with. So to sum it all down, love the brethren because and flowing out of the way in which God has loved yeah. you. Let's pray. Father, knit our hearts closer together. I praise you and I thank you for what I've seen even these past two days in this church. Lord, you are working these truths out among this people. I see people that love you and love each other. I pray that you would only increase that. I pray that they would have a love that is so otherworldly that as our Lord said in John 13, the world will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love each other. God, I pray that the the, the way that the members of Providence love each other would be their greatest evangelistic apologetic. That it's the world and others see the way that these saints selflessly love each other, that they would say, that isn't natural. That's not normal. Their gospel is real. Father, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you protect them. Protect them from the things that destroy fellowship and tear at the seams of our unity. Protect them, I pray, O God. Cause them to flourish. Cause them to be lovers of the brethren. People who outdo one another in honoring each other. A people who use their mouth to build up, their hands to help, and their hearts to love. I pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.